This is Sit Rep on BFBS. America and Britain back off from boots on the ground in Iraq as the aid effort there is stepped up. On one hand, we do nothing, one end of the spectrum. The other end, other end of the spectrum, you know, do we put large numbers of ground troops back into Iraq? Well, we're not going to do the latter. It's, it's much closer to the former. Is the issue of defence impacting Scotland's referendum debate and the secret letters that help Britain prepare for the First World War? Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. The pace towards troops being placed on the ground in northern Iraq appeared to be gathering pace this week. That is until the brakes were applied by the Pentagon on Wednesday night. It now says a rescue operation on the Sinjar mountain range is not needed. Over the last week, British military involvement has also increased with RAF aid drops, then tornadoes flown out for possible surveillance operations. Four Chinook helicopters could also be used to help the humanitarian mission. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here with us in the studio. Christopher, I gather you've been getting the very latest on this this morning. What summary can you give us of where we're at? There was a meeting of COBRA, which is the um, a briefing room, in, in, in the Cabinet Office where the Joint Intelligence Committee, all three services plus the Foreign Office, Overseas Development, etc. all gave their reports plus the Americans. Now, the big story and the Prime Minister is now saying, well, it's not so bad as we thought <laughs> um, because there are not so many on Mount Sinjar. Um, and so we will probably reserve the right or reserve the option to go in and help people uh, but it's okay, in not, certainly not so many. Now, the idea now is that the public will sort of sit back and say, "Cos, well, mate, that's all right then. Uh, the crisis is over, and that's what they would like it to happen. They would like the whole thing to cool down. You've got to remember that Mount Sinjar is a tiny part of what's going on in Iraq at the moment. And it is a military operation um, ag- against the IS. One other part of it came out is that we will probably uh, transport but not supply weapons to the Peshmerga, and these are the Kurdish uh, infantry. That, again, I think we ought to just pause a bit. Peshmerga is a lightly light infantry uh, with not much equipment. Uh, We can fly in, although we won't supply, we can fly in Mm. perhaps weapons to them, but they need, A, a lot of training... They can't get it from elsewhere. Certainly not from the uh, Afghan, uh, from the I- Iraqi army. Um, they have no command and control system against the operation of the Islamic State. And Islamic State is not a ragbag body. They are really, they are very well armed. They know how to use the system, and they have a very good command system. Well, let's get more from you in a minute, Christopher. But let's hear what uh, Major General Tim Cross, he was the senior British officer in the building of the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. Let's see what he has to say. He explained it's a very difficult situation. I think we've got the, the two issues that we've got to grapple with. One is the refugee crisis, uh, which again we have form on. We put a three commando brigade under what was then called Operation Safe Haven with the Americans, led by, by a man called Jay Garner, who I worked with in Baghdad subsequently in 2003. Um, So we had effectively two brigades in the Kurdish mountains in the north uh, helping the Kurds who were then escaping from Saddam Hussein after the first Gulf campaign. Um, And we did a very good job. So when you're dealing with refugee crises, there's an element of of reality that you need people on the ground to help. My brigade built and ran refugee camps in Kosovo, Macedonia, Albania, in uh, in the Balkans. And, uh, you know, you can do things from the air, 
but actually you do need people on the ground to some level of degree. Having people on the ground helps you to identify the dropping zones, lay out the dropping zones, make the place safe and so forth. But again, that's not easy because you've got obviously large numbers of people who basically want to get out. So the minute you start putting people on the, on the ground, they're going to get engaged in that. So the aid agencies that are there, how do we support them? How do we secure the environment? Um, how do we, what do we do with all these people? And it's interesting that President Obama is using the word genocide. And that's quite an emo- well, not quite, it's an emotive word, and obviously it will drive some of the reactions from, from around the place. So we've got to do something about this refugee crisis. And I think there's an issue there of our values, not just our national interest in that issue, our values about wanting to help people who are clearly going through a very difficult time. And we have a lot of history of that, I think we should be very proud about that. Um, so deploying assets to enable us to, to engage with that problem. Then there's the problem of the caliphate itself, the ISIS, Islamic State forces, who are on a roll at the moment. They're being very successful, um, and we, we need to work with those who can help contain them, if not push them back. And of the forces on the ground in the region, the only people who are capable of doing that are the Peshmerga, the Kurds, and, you know, ironically, maybe something to do with Assad in Syria. Major Tim Cross there. Christopher, interesting point about Assad. Yes, the, uh, we must never forget that what we're seeing in Iraq now is an overspill from what's going on in Syria. The other thing there, you see, um, uh, Tim Cross was talking about uh, the refugee camps, mm. and there are a number of them, and this is the biggest crisis, and this is the biggest instability in the whole of Iraq. And they say, OK, the refugees are moving towards the north of uh, Iraq into that refugee camp. It is not a refugee camp. It is a small township Yes. There is no United Nations there, no relief organizations as yet. And the only people to, that can cater with the stream of refugees going in there are the people that live in the towns. No food will be doing airdrops on them next. Now, that is the sort of thing that's coming out. It's not misinformation, but it's okay, we can do that. We can, we can, we can see that. It's almost as if somebody's taken the map and said, oh, well, that looks all right, that looks pretty clean. And it's not. And failing to take into account the UN today, who's de- who've declared this a major emergency, 1.2 million people displaced within Iraq. It seems strange. Plus 2 million out of uh, Syria as well. Absolutely. What do you do with them? A lot of people, and the focus very much on Mount Sinjar. Oh, there aren't many people here. They're not as nearly dead as we thought they might be. Everything's okay, seems to be the message. Yeah, and then send in a few sharabangs and get the rest out. I mean, it is this image that uh, publicly in the United States especially, and perhaps in the United Kingdom, that people will say, OK, job done, job fixed. We don't mm. have to really get excited about this anymore. And we Let, should. Yeah. Let's um, get a few words now with Eric Grove, Professor of Naval History and Senior Fellow in Security Studies at Liverpool Hope University. Professor Grove, you've been no doubt listening to uh, the discussion thus far. What's your take on it? Well, I think I agree with everything that's been said, really. I mean, it, this is a very difficult situation, and potentially there is a great humanitarian disaster in the offing. In fact, there's been quite a lot of that already. Um, I must admit, I'm rather reluctant to get main force ground units on the, um, from outside there. I think the, the big difference between Operation Haven back in 1991, when we sent in the Marines, 
was that there are in fact forces, the, the Peshmerga, who yes, they are largely a light infantry force, but they do have some heavier equipment. I've just been checking up on that. They, they do have some old Russian tanks, but the problem is it's old Iraqi equipment and the, the IS forces have managed to acquire quite a large amount of very sophisticated modern, modern American equipment. And, and hence they are rather, and hence the, the, the Peshmerga and their PKK allies are rather outgunned and therefore they are crying out for some kind of uh, help, help from outside side. An airstrike seemed to be the obvious way of doing it. It does even up things. But I think we must always bear in mind that we do have a friendly ground force which can act as, shall we say, uh, a basis for perhaps a limited special forces commitment, which apparently, according to reports we've had, the SAS have been there for some time. The US Marines did the inspection recently. Whether they were flying from the amphibious ready group that's in the Gulf, I think it's the Bataan ready group or not, I'm not sure. But, if, if, of course, the great thing f- from the American point of view is that they have some sea-based air power and some, and some sea-based military power there. The George H.W. Bush, their only operational carrier strike group, is actually operational in the Gulf and has provided the F- of the F-18s. So a limited amount of air power used in the right way, plus the forces on the ground. It was a formula that worked at least operationally, although it left behind problems in Libya. And I think that that probably is is the way forward. But I'd be very reluctant to bring in large numbers of ground forces. As we've seen from recent experience this century, they can create as many problems as they solve. Christopher, just uh, picking up on some of that, um, air power is advocated there by Professor Grove, but is that going to have any effect with the numbers, the sheer numbers of people we're talking of here? No, you, it, it doesn't. I mean, where do you start? The first thing you've got to have is good intelligence. You get intelligence from satellites, uh, and you get them from geostationary satellites, then low-Earth observation satellites. That's where you get the, the bigger pictures. And you get a flight over every 90 minutes in one place if you mm-hmm. want it. Then you get aircraft going in but the most important, and you live signals intelligence, the most important thing you get, though, is eyes on the ground and what you could hear. Incidentally, uh, I know Eric's right about the, uh, the Peshmerga with its tanks, but nobody, nobody, as far as I know, has worked out how to service those old Skoda engines in those tanks, and they don't go very far apart from smart parades. <laughs> so many issues there. We, we could, you know, we could talk on this one all day. You know, we, Eric mentioned carriers there. Well, of course, we can't contribute any form of carrier at the moment. What about the regional response as well? Should not the Arab countries be getting involved in this? George Galloway was advocating that one yesterday, saying we need to keep out of this one. Um, but anyway, let's move on. There's been plenty of pressure on the government to do more in Iraq this week, and uh, not just from Parliament, but also from former military leaders. Among those speaking out, former General Richard Sheriff, who was NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, as recently as March this year. He said the action taken in Iraq so far was posturing ahead of the election, and the government was terrified to take more direct action. Evening Standards defence correspondent Robert Fox told SITREP there are reasons right now to raise these concerns, even though the government does have a forum for the military to air these views. In a way, they have the advantage in that there is a forum to bring this forward in the National Security Council. But the National Security Council brought in by the coalition government has the misfortune of being very prone to its own version of soundbite and Twitter journalism. It's almost as if the Cameron-led coalition can only digest a policy issue if it's in 140 characters of a tweet. 
Richard uh, Shereff actually criticised the government's posture in NATO while he was serving as Deputy uh, Supreme Allied Commander. But in fact, it, it, it's, uh, it's uh, reality check time for the government. Uh, when they come to host the NATO summit in Wales in the first week in September. Because all these things will come up, uh, the posture over particularly Ukraine and Eastern Europe, but certainly the NATO vital interests in Afghanistan as NATO quits Afghanistan, and above all, Iraq, and the point of the Fertile Crescent involving Turkey, Syria, Iran, you name it, that is a, a vital interest. But behind all that, there is one really big issue which the government doesn't want to hear. Government's major contributors to NATO will be asked to spend 2% of gross domestic product on defence. The government will say, we'll hold it steady, we'll go up by 1% from the 38 billion we've reduced to 34 billion. But by the time the economy gets going and will be marked for the general election in May, Britain could be spending as low as 1.6% of its gross domestic product. Now, this is where the generals and the commentators are absolutely right to say, to ask the question at least, is this an indicator that the government doesn't take any of this seriously? And I suspect the jury is out on that very much. Robert Fox there speaking to SITREP, but why do former commanders feel the need to raise these issues as soon as they leave the forces? Uh, Christopher, Eric, views on this one. Why do commanders speak out, Eric? Well, I think, well, they feel they can now. I mean, it is quite limiting when you're, uh, you know, when you're a serving officer. There are great limits to what you can say. Although I think sometimes they do tend to go along with policy a little too much, and there are ways of leaking things that perhaps they ought to do a bit more. I, I think the Navy should have done that in the SDSR to try to see off some of the swinging cuts that occurred to it at that time. Um, but I think, yes, I think, I think they have a certain sense of freedom. They have a certain sense of knowledge as well, because they know what's happening on the inside, and they want to make their mark and try and push the debate in the in the direction they want to and I think there's a very good argument as Robert just said that we have been spending far too little on defence in recent years and now with a threat arising in the east a good old-fashioned or bad old-fashioned Russian threat crisis in the Middle East we're going to have to spend more if you want to affect things in any kind of military way and in terms of the platform for these people to speak these days of course Christopher it's much broader than it's ever been 24-hour rolling news all this sort of thing are we pushing the agenda with these people yeah. It's dead simple. I mean, why do why do uh, generals and, and others uh, speak out? It's because we ask them to. <laughs> and this is dead simple. We are so used to now being able to go to people, and at that level, they're they're very articulate. And because for the past ten years or so we've been in a war, there are big issues for them to actually say, "Do this, don't do that." Still to come, as it's claimed Trident could be moved from Scotland, is defence featuring in the independence debate. Yes, sit red with me, Tim Cooper, in the studio, Christopher Lee. The eyes of the world, of course, focusing on Iraq, primarily Gaza as well for the past two weeks, but eastern Ukraine, the situation there is still ongoing. The West keeping an eye on this convoy carrying aid from Russia to the region, fears it could be a pretext for military action in the Ukraine. Christopher and Eric, uh, Eric's on the line. Um, this Ukraine crisis, it's very much a game-changer, isn't it, for NATO? And we've talked about this before, commanders speaking out. Uh, is it time they were speaking out about how this has 
shifted our relationship with Russia. Christopher? Well, I mean, two things here. One is that uh, why is this convoy taking place now? And that's partly, uh, some people don't, certainly don't know Whitehall I've been talking to, so, say, now listen, uh, all our eyes are on Iraq and Gaza. This is a good time for Putin to shift nearly 300 trucks down onto the border. Now, what happens is this. They get down to the border. The Ukraine government has said, no way Mm. are you coming across. They've said that twice. Now, sometime uh, later this evening, they should be reaching the border. If Ukraine forces say, no, you're not coming across... And Russian forces on that border say, yes, they are, and we're going to escort them in. Imagine another meeting of Cobra at about 8 o'clock tonight. Potential flashpoint, potentially of Putin's desired making. Eric, um, well, moving on, it's a very obvious question, but do you think Russia are using this as a pretext, a Trojan horse attempt to get ground forces there actually wearing their uniforms? Quite possibly. I mean, I think that Putin is an excellent chess player. I think he's handled this crisis remarkably well and remarkably elegantly, if one can say that. And I think that I agree entirely with Chris. I mean, this is a glorious opportunity to create an incident that might lead to Russian forces... I almost said Soviet then. That was a poor <laughs> Russian forces moving into eastern Ukraine, claiming to be peacekeepers, claiming to be protecting humanitarian aid, doing the kind of thing that the West is thinking of doing in Iraq... And it's very well timed. And I think that that could create a whole new, a whole new situation. What is happening in eastern Ukraine is a real threat to European security. And it's back to the future. And I think, and I think we're going to have to think much more carefully about a proper response to what is an increasingly threatening Russian aggressive mm. policy in eastern Europe. Yes, yeah, certainly on a recent exercise I was at in Lithuania with uh, NATO. They say this is a game changer. Eric Grove, Professor of Naval History and Senior Fellow in Security Studies at Liverpool Hope University. As ever, thank you very much for joining us on SITREP. Well, just over a month now, Scotland will decide if it's yes or no. The independence vote, of course, widespread ramifications, and not least on defence. The SNP says an independent Scotland would remove Trident. A study released today by the Royal United Services Institute claims moving the UK's nuclear deterrent is possible. But it says relocating Trident would take time. Stuart Crawford is a defence commentator who's written about the impact of Scottish independence on defence. Joins us now on the line. Stuart, thanks for joining us on SITREP. First of all, Trident is at the heart of defence discussions in this independence debate, but do you think it will influence voters? Um, I think it will influence uh, voters who are directly uh, um, related to Trident, i.e. the, the, uh, the workers in the South Lane base. And I think also there's a very strong um, anti-nuclear element which runs through um, the, the Yes Scotland campaign and probably through the No Scotland, uh, the, the Better Together campaign as well. But um, I've often said that when it comes to debating defence of an independent Scotland, all roads eventually lead uh, to Trident and its presence there. So I think it's absolutely central to the independence debate. Today's Rusi report, is that good news for the SNP and those that want an independent Scotland? Does it back their stance on this? Well, I mean, yes and no. I think that uh, it's good for the SNP and the independence movement in that it says that Trident can, can be moved and at much less cost than perhaps others uh, have already said. Uh, the bad news is, of course, the timescale, because um, I think both the, the Hugh Chalmers and, and Malcolm Chalmers, although I haven't read the report, have indicated that this would be a lengthy process and the earliest date at which um, it could be removed uh, under their plan would be well after the 2020 sort of 
um, indicator that the British government's white paper for removal of crime. So I, have, I have long said that compromise situations Stuart, sorry to interrupt you there. We're having problems with your line. We'll try redialing. Christopher, let's pick up on this one. Apologies uh, for that. Um, let, let's talk about... We, we know it's been a major issue. We know the SNP and, and people, particularly on the No campaign, are anti-Trident, but it does tend to overshadow defence issues as a whole, particularly what defence force Scotland might have and its links with NATO. Yeah, I mean, there's another side of it with the, with the Navy. I mean, one of the places, by the way, the Trident could go to, and the Americans quite like it, is to America. America. Mm. And we could, we could we, we, you know, carry it up there. But, but would we want that? Would that be just an admission of defeat, in effect? Uh, not if you've got a, if you, if you've got a long-range force production deterrent, where it doesn't matter, because you drive it down to the South Atlantic or wherever you like. But uh, there's another aspect of this. I mean, the whole defence thing is also a bit of uh, logistics. Um, you don't have to have a large army and air force or whatever to be part of NATO. And NATO quite like people sort of joining as well. Denmark, Estonia, for example. It, it, exactly. But there's another aspect. Um, the Navy announced, or the MOD announced this week, that uh, some patrol craft are going to be built. Where are they going to be built? Going to be, be built in Scotland. The other thing, we're just you mentioned earlier about the carriers. The carriers uh, are, are being completed. First, the Queen Elizabeth II and then the Prince of Wales. Uh, in the dry dock in Scotland, yes. Mm. Uh, a ship goes out to sea on operations. After about two and a half years, it has to go into dry dock for a two-year refit. There's only one dock that's big enough to take it in the whole of the British Isles since Scotland. Mm-hmm. And so this is the bigger, I think, the bigger defence debate. The other thing is, is simply a question of how many jobs at stake, how much money could be uh, got out of, the, out of the English government to pay for what might be taking place in Scotland. But I'll tell you something which is fascinating. I don't believe there's ever been a general election, I know this isn't a general election, a general election where defence has been a main issue. I think, would you agree, Stuart Crawford, you're back on the line, sorry about that, would you agree that defence, we talk about it a lot in the media and lots of interested parties are particularly keen on it, but for, for national normal people, is it an election issue? Well, I think that for many people it is. They always say that there are no votes in defence, but I have noticed that even during Scottish parliamentary elections in the past, um, defence always becomes one of the major talking points. So I think it is a topic... Um, which is uh, considered, uh, but it's not necessarily the major one. Stuart Crawford, thank you ever so much for joining us. Sorry about the problems with the line there. Right, as we all know, it is the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War, and exhibitions being held in Sussex right now, highlighting a unique collection of Great War letters. They're on display at a country house called Nyman's near Haywards Heath, and they were written to the estate's former owner, Colonel Leonard Messel. He trained thousands to fight at the front. There's a lot more to this man. Nyman's house steward, Nicky Claxton, takes up the story. Any person that he trained, from whatever rank they were, if they wanted to write to him during the war, he would write to them and write back. It went beyond that, so it wasn't just that support. If they were, their family at home were having problems with money, he would sort that out. And he wrote so frequently, some of the letters, when you get a response back from them, are in such a short space of time, he must have responded immediately when he got them. Colonel Leonard Messel received letters from scores of troops and did what he could to help them. This despite being banned from fighting himself. That's because his father, Ludwig, came from Germany. 
was British. So to have all this anti-German sentiment going around that he was a part of, even though he wouldn't see himself as being particularly German, it must have been very difficult. I mean, the letters have such a huge range. There's some that are very honest. Dear Colonel Messel, the trench is totally wrecked and the number of dead still lying about in areas long since left behind is appalling. Thiepval and Beaucourt exist only as names. One passes over them without dreaming that they could have been villages. Because of who he was, they could be entirely honest with what they were feeling. So um, some of them are very, very specific about the sort of horrible things that they were facing. Nicky Kangston there, I met uh, yesterday. Fascinating tale, that one, Christopher, isn't it? What does it say about this man, do you think? Um, there, there are certain people in, in wartime, and then after the war, everybody forgets them. Mm. Uh, they're, they're almost, you know, people remember Colonel David Sturvin, for example, because he started the SAS, but very few people, uh, or the long-range desert group, but very few people know anything about him. Yeah. What you're hearing is what other people thought, and that is a, it's a gold mine. Um, and it's a gold mine for somebody who was, you know, Colonel. He was not one of the great donkeys leading the lions in the in, in, in that terrible war. Um, I think it should be cultivated. And we ought to look around and find out where the other guys are, where the other hordes yes. of letters are, and they are all over the country. It's time to reevaluate the First World War. I t- truly do believe that. Let's move on to some any other business and welcome back uh, Eric Grove. I said goodbye to you earlier. I shouldn't have done that, Eric. Apologies. That's okay. <laughs> I stayed on. I you stayed, stayed on. on. You're a star. <laughs> yes. We were talking. We've we've alluded several times to carriers, haven't we? And yep. it's a good time, I think, Eric, to to play back a hundred years from now because we can't have a carrier to send out to stand off anywhere near Iraq. Um, but in 1914, the Royal Navy had a huge flotilla that was able to participate. Times have changed. Well, a whole fl- I mean, a whole fleet. In fact, fleets. In mm. fact, the Royal Navy was by far the largest navy on the planet uh, in uh, in 1914. It was the uh, the key armed force of a global empire. We'd outbuilt both the Germans and the Americans in capital ships, battleships and battle cruisers in the years up to the First World War. We'd maintained a two-power standard, although we defined it as one power plus 60% because the Foreign Office didn't want to alienate the Americans. (laughs) Uh, And uh, yes, and we also had half the world's mercantile marine. We were at the centre of the global communications and financial system. Britain was still a major superpower in 1914. You could argue we sort of threw it away by entering the First World War. There is an argument that we might have kept out and used our sea power to act as a kind of defence, an arbiter, so we could stand off and see, and, see, and, see, uh, and see who won. We also, according to some recent work, had plans for a very fierce economic camp- campaign of economic warfare against Germany, but in the end, a full-scale blockade as early as possible, which would uh, unhinge the German economy in the opening months of the war. And there's an argument that people like Churchill and Lloyd George, who wanted to go to war, thought that it would be relatively painless and that we could actually have an economic campaign. As things turned out, the Americans wouldn't let us do it. Uh, the Board of Trade wanted to continue business as usual, and the result was we had to send troops to France and that es- escalated into the larger-scale land campaign we ever you know, we ever carried out, Christopher, um, Eric. Um, it, I tell you, the fascinating thing for, for me, anyway, about the First World War. We start the First World, as you suggest, the biggest navy by far in the world, and the dreadnought is the hulk that everybody understands. But it's a reminder how long it takes to put together a navy. Now, you probably remember, I can't. It wasn't it the Naval Defence Act of eighteen eighty nine which really That's started right. this. I think it was. So twenty. Tim's arbiter, always right. Um, <laughs> but it, it does mean that it's 25 years yeah. 
you don't do it. You can't just go out, for example, and recruit a bunch of guys. It right. takes that time. And when you and can, even, even today, you know, you build yourself a ship. And we think it's going to be around for 50 years, and that's the important part of this. And it's personnel as well, isn't it, Eric, on that theme that Chris was developing? Because even now in the Royal Navy, we have job roles that are really hard to fill because the skill set's been lost because the ships have been withdrawn. Well, we tried very hard, in fact, to maintain a fleet that could be, be mobilised. A large number of ships were kept in reserve with so-called nucleus crews. And there was a very large reserve of former, of former regular naval people. There was the former mercantile Royal Naval Reserve. A little dubiously, the Navy had recruited a lot of yachtsmen in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, some of whom they wouldn't send to sea, and they, and they used to create the Royal Naval Division instead. Excuse but me, there was Eric, you're talking about my grandfather was amongst that lot. <laughs> but there was Dubious. the personnel, <laughs> and there was the infrastructure. And, in fact, the... Vic- I mean, the, the, the achievements of British industry in the First World War were, were quite remarkable. We built something like 300 destroyers during the First World War. John Brown's on the Clyde built about a tenth of those. In fact, they built one destroyer in four months. When you consider how long it takes to build a warship now, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> There's another side of this, isn't there? If you take at 1914, but those, you know, let's say the beginning of the, uh, the century, the, the British had an empire. Uh, 450 million people saluted the British flag somewhere in the world every morning. Absolutely. We had a, a commercial uh, responsibility as well as, as, as a hope to maintain it for our own uses. The, actually, the British could make a case, and it was Churchill's father who argued so well on this, or so badly, whichever way you view the way he had to go. Um, you had a, an idea that the British actually needed a navy, uh, whereas today it is very, very difficult to convince the British public that the navy is needed. A time to leave, I think. Sorry, Eric, we've got to go, but what what a talking point to end on there, Christopher. It brings us bang up to date as well, back to the present day, and this talk of history in 1914, we can reevaluate it constantly, and 100 years from now, I guess they'll be doing that about what's happening today and what has happened in the last... 20 or so years in defence. Thanks very much for joining me. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep. Send us a Twitter. You can listen again on our website as well. But from all of us here and from me, Tim Cooper, thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Digital radio, FM, and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air, around the world. This is the Forces Station. The FBS. FBS.